Do you know something? It is a huge privilege to be able to um, to preach, to bring God's word. I do not take that for granted. Um, and I've really been stirred this week looking into this chapter. Um, and I, think I feel quite excited to be coming to just share some thoughts with you. We, we have a lot to get through, so we need to go fairly quick. It would be a great help if you could keep your finger in the page because we're going to refer to um, some of these verses here in Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, we're, we're beginning to get into this letter and the, the logic that the writer uses is, is, is kind of occurring on a, on, a, on a lot of different levels. So I, I, I hope one of my challenges is to try and make simple uh, this, this chapter so that we can break it open and learn from it together. I'm taking my uh, rather challenging title, which you haven't seen yet. I've just realized it's not appeared on the wall behind me. My rather challenging title, which is about to appear on the wall behind me, in a moment <laughs> is do not harden your hearts um, yeah what a great title for, a, for a, a sermon in church do not harden your hearts I'm taking that title from verse 8 the first line of verse 8 um, it does occur again in verse 15 and you'll probably notice if you've got your Bible open on that page that it appears again in verse 7 of chapter 4. So I think this title does summarize quite well the, the key thought that is in the writer's mind. Um, do not harden your heart. On the plus side, this is a rather challenging title, but on the plus side, perhaps we can see that the Bible wouldn't say this if there wasn't a danger for us to avoid. There is a danger that our hearts will be hardened. And so the Bible here pleads with us not to let that happen to us. We, we talked last time about how this writer strikes an amazing balance between warning and encouraging. Anyone who's a parent for any short length of time will know that that is crucial. If we were only ever warning our children and never encouraging them, they would be browbeaten and miserable. But if we only ever encourage them and we never warn them, we'll spoil them. And how important it is to have a good balance between those two things, warning and encouragement. And this writer is masterful. This letter is a masterpiece, really, of, of loving, passionate leadership where he's wanting to warn them and encourage them, almost sometimes at the same time. Chapter 3, I think, and chapter 4, bear this out, I've got the privilege of going through chapter 3 here Richard is going to deal with some thoughts in chapter 4 but when you look at the headings here uh, 
chapter 3 is warning. Do not harden your heart. Chapter 4 is encouragement. Enter God's rest. So the two things are there in chapter 3 and 4. Do not harden your heart. Enter God's rest. Don't miss out. But find God's goodness and grace. So those two things are always there. Last time we focused on chapter 3 and just verse 1 because that was really important. I've left myself the tall order of getting through all the rest of the verses in one go now in one session, so you'll have to bear with me. But uh, in verse 1, I think we could summarise what we said last week on one slide. Um, I haven't got the clicker, so I'm going to rely on my good friends at the back there to to click on. Um, In in chapter 3 and verse 1, our our heading was Fix Your Thoughts on Jesus. And... um, He gives two titles for Jesus there, an apostle and a high priest. And we saw the apostle is someone who God sends to reveal God to people, like a messenger. A high priest is someone who does the opposite to that. The high priest is one who comes near to broken people and enables them to be brought near to God. So the two sides of that are remarkably balanced. That's warning and encouragement as well, isn't it? He reveals God to us. And he brings us to God. Jesus is very great in his role as an apostle and very gentle in his role as a high priest. Our question should be, why is the writer saying all this then? And why why on earth are we studying it on a sunny Sunday afternoon in Rotherham in 2013? What's going on? Well, I think it should be obvious to us as we go through this chapter, if it hasn't been already, that there's a very real danger that the people he's writing to are on the verge of walking out on Jesus. They're in danger of losing their grip and falling away. If they were soldiers in the army, we would say they don't really want to fight anymore and they're tempted to desert and become deserters. Because these people are originally Jewish believers, their particular issue is that they're tempted to go backwards to what they knew of Judaism. They're going to forsake Jesus and go back to what they already knew as represented by that great Old Testament character Moses. We'll come to him. And I I want to suggest that this is a very urgent letter written to believers who are on the verge of giving up their faith. They kind of have a foot in both camps and they're not sure whether to go forward in faith with Jesus or leave Jesus and go backwards to what they knew of Judaism. So the big idea here is Jesus is faithful in bringing God to you and in bringing you to God. So don't be unfaithful and forsake him or be tempted to swap him for something else that you think is better than him. That's the big idea. I think this writer needs to have a number of bulls in the air. You know that phrase? He's got to keep a few things uh, in the air here. He needs great tactfulness. I I think the situation here is very urgent and delicate. He obviously loves them. 
he has a very very high view of scripture um, as God's word he understands the Old Testament very well he knows what they're tempted to go back to he also loves Jesus and somehow he's got to try and hold all these things together in a way that isn't dismissive of the Old Testament but points them to cling to Jesus he doesn't want to crush them but he does need to warn them and encourage them and so his language is fix your thoughts on Jesus if he criticises the Old Testament then they'll think that he's being very dismissive of their history but if he indulges their fears he's never going to stretch them to put their whole confidence in Jesus he's got a delicate job on his hands hasn't he He's, he's got to write in such a way that he can hold all of those things together. Somehow he's trying to show them that the past was good and God-given and it is part of their heritage but that Jesus is the fulfilment of all of that. And I think his leadership here is very nuanced. Well, we've left ourselves a fair bit to cover so under the heading of do not harden your hearts which I think is a key theme here I th- what, what we'll try and do is just walk through the logic of, of, of the writer I, I don't really have any fancy titles for you today we'll, we'll just walk through the logic here so my, my first question on the first slide which will appear as if by magic behind me in a moment look with me at verse 2 while we're waiting for that to appear having told them to fix their thoughts on Jesus the apostle and high priest whom we confess he then points them to a particular facet of Jesus' character that he wants them to focus on as they fix their thoughts on Jesus he's not asking them to empty their minds and do some sort of transcendental meditation he says fix your thoughts on Jesus and what is the aspect of Jesus' character that he wants them to focus on verse 2 faithfulness thank you he was faithful to the one who appointed him or sent him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house this is a very tactful leader who is not wanting to criticise their heritage so the first thing he does is he finds a way to kind of in what way are Moses and Jesus the same I'm going to talk in a little while about oh they're different but I'm not going to start with that I'm going to start with in what way are Moses and Jesus the same very tactful very diplomatic so in what way are Moses and Jesus the same well they were both sent by God and they were faithful so next slide gives us the answer they were both faithful leaders sent by God one writer says the great thing about Moses was his faithfulness he did what God had entrusted him to do when you think about it Moses and Jesus are similar in a lot of ways they were both leaders sent by God both of them were instrumental 
in delivering people from slavery in Moses' case physical slavery in Jesus' case spiritual slavery and bringing people to a promised place of rest in Moses' case the promised land Canaan in Jesus' case the rest that's found in him and ultimately the rest of heaven both were sent by God to reveal God to the people and to bring the people into a relationship with God Moses and Jesus very similar in a lot of ways so the writer says as you fix your thoughts on Jesus I want you to keep in mind that he was faithful just like Moses was now here's a question for you do you know who said this about Moses he was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house obviously the writer's saying it but do you know who originally said that about Moses he's quoting someone else who said that about Moses do you know who it was There was a time when Moses' own brother and sister criticised him as a leader. Sometimes I go to football matches and sometimes the crowd, you know, the, the manager makes a substitution and the crowd go, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. Sometimes they sing that about the ref as well. But when they're singing about the manager, what an awful thing it must be to be the manager stood on the touchline and your own fans singing to you, you don't know what you're doing. I think this happens a lot in the workplace. One of the hardest things I think about being a manager of other people is when you sometimes overhear them talking and they don't realise that you're hearing them and they're saying, don't know what they're doing, the gaffer does he? <laughs> and you think, oh, you don't know what you're doing what an awful thing it is for a leader to be criticised in that way his own brother and sister were saying Moses you don't know what you're doing and do you know who said this God did God said to Moses' own brother and sister take your hands off Moses he is faithful in all my house if you've got an issue with Moses you my friends have got an issue with me <laughs> what imagine saying you don't know what you're doing and God going shut up <laughs> he's mine <laughs> that's a good defence isn't it wind your necks in <laughs> oh sorry you can read all about it in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7 God said this about Moses he was faithful in all God's house and what an epitaph as well for a leader what a, what a thing for God to say about a leader when other people are criticising them and for, God's, for God to say don't worry you've been faithful to me well done that is the only way I think that leaders can cope with criticism when their eye is on the opinion of the one who really counts. God, doesn't matter what other people think, does it? If God says, 
He's been faithful in all my house. What a marvelous encouragement that must have been to Moses. What a, let's just uh, pause for a minute. What about the idea of God's house or God's household? He was faithful in all God's house. That's a very unusual description um, for God to use about Moses. The people have grown. They've been in slavery in Egypt. God calls Moses, who brings them out of Egypt. And they're moving towards the promised land of rest. And God says, Moses has been faithful in all my house. It's like, why did God not... Moses has been faithful in leading my nation. Or in running my company. But he... He's been faithful in all my house. I think the idea of a household implies people, family, relationships. And why does anyone build a house? Answer? To live in. What is God doing in the Old Testament? He is building a house. What is a house for? For him to live in. What does that mean? It means that he wants community. He is calling and building and creating a people for himself. He is making a family, a house. And what does God say about Moses? Moses, I sent him... I appointed him and he has been faithful in all my house. God is making, through Moses, a community of people. So that's the first question. In what way were they the same? Moses and Jesus were faithful in this way. In what way were they different? Let's trace the logic. My next slide. Oh, that's gone back to the first what slide. In what way are Moses and Jesus the same? I hope I haven't put the wrong thing on there. What's the next one? Oh, sorry, that is right. I'm getting confused. We've dealt with the same. No, we think that was just to keep you on your toes. To a bit. Yeah. And then maybe you might hear God's voice. <laughs> I hope you would. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's doing. There you go. Well, I'm glad you're awake and you're listening. That's very cool. Okay. How were they different? Well, look at the verses. Um, we've got, I think, four things to say here. And as I say these, they'll appear on the screen behind me. Moses was part of the house, but Jesus built it. That's the first thing, isn't it? Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, verse 3, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. It's a very interesting comment, that verse 4. It's, it's almost like verse 4 should be in brackets. Every house is built by someone, but God builds everything. It's almost like these Jewish believers had become so respectful of Moses 
they esteemed him so highly, in many ways rightly so, that they'd forgotten that he wasn't God. <laughs> Moses was great, but this is not Moses' house. He's in the house, but Jesus is the one who builds the house. Moses is good, but even he was appointed by God. You know, some people appeal to their religion. Oh, this is, this is what our religion says. The writer says, no, the religion may be good, but the ultimate source of all things is God himself. So Moses was part of the house, Jesus built it. Secondly, Moses was a servant, but Jesus is the son. That's another good argument, isn't it? Verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful as a son. He's the son of God. He's not someone who is just a prophet. He's the Lord. Moses wasn't the inventor of the legal system. He didn't invent the Ten Commandments. He was simply the agent through which they were given. Thirdly, Moses pointed to the future um, and by implication, Jesus fulfills those promises. Um, Verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. His job was to work as a servant in God's household in a way that would point to Jesus coming one day that on its own means that Jesus is worthy of great honour than Moses he predicted Jesus fulfills you get that? and then fourthly and finally we're told that Moses was in God's house but Jesus is faithful as a son over God's house Hey, we've got all four. So this is, this is compelling logic, isn't it? What he's saying is, Moses was good, he was brilliant. But Jesus is better. Can you see how tactful he's been? He's not like making Moses look rubbish. He wants to uphold all that God did through Moses, but show them that it points to Jesus. These are people who attempted to desert Jesus and go back to Moses. He's saying, no, 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 no. Moses was good, Jesus He's the Lord. Now we've reached the end of verse 6. And I want to just linger on this verse because it's very important. Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. We've dealt with that part. But get this. And we are his house. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Now, when I got to that verse, I wished I'd not said, we'll do the whole chapter in one go. Because that verse is really important and we will see other verses like it as we go through Hebrews. There are two ways to read uh, this verse. But first of all, I just want you to see the encouragement in this verse before we look at it um, in, in detail. You imagine that you're a Jewish believer 
And perhaps you've been cut off from your family because of your faith in Jesus. Imagine your dad saying he's no son of mine if he's trusting in Jesus. Get out. Maybe in your private moments you've been wondering whether you've made a terrible mistake. What an encouragement there is here in these words. We are his house. They may have been cast out of the local synagogue, but they hadn't been cast out by God. They need to hear that, don't they? These tired, sometimes persecuted believers. Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. There's a great encouragement there for those who were cast out because of their faith in Jesus. But there's a very important principle stated in this verse, which I just want to linger over. So our next slide is my summary. The mark of God's true people is that they make it to the end. That is the mark of God's genuine, true children. They make it to the end. I said you could read this verse two ways. You could read it as if it was a test to pass. We are his house if we hold on to our courage. So it's like, you know, if you do this, then you'll achieve this. You could read it that way, test to pass. But there is another way to read it. You could read it as kind of evidence. So, so the sense is, if we, we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. The, in other words, the reason we know someone is a true believer is because they make it to the end. I think this is so misunderstood but it's really quite brilliant on the one hand this guards against anyone saying I've got my ticket to heaven I'm going to tuck it in my back pocket and then I'm going to please myself this verse you, you couldn't live like that according to this verse because the mark of God's two children is that they make it to the end Nowhere in the Bible does the doctrine of eternal security teach Christian believers to be complacent. Nowhere. Anyone who rests on a kind of, I'm okay, God loves me, and I'm going to use that idea to excuse my laziness, or worse still, unholiness, will be in for a rude shock. What this verse is teaching is that there are people who think they're in and who rest on their laurels and their religious credentials when in actual fact, all the while, they're still out. In other words, it is very possible that some people think they have faith, but actually they have none. 
And what the writer's saying is, we are his house when we display the marks of God's two children, which is, we'll make it to the end. When you stop and think about it, it actually makes sense, doesn't it? If, if God is involved in this business of salvation, is God going to call people, save people, change people, transform their lives, and then go, oh, whoops, I dropped them. That, that, what honour would God gain from that? Those who are God's two children will make it. But those who are God's two children will also strive to make it. That's the evidence of what they are in the first place. And if anyone tries to turn that around and say, well, because I'm God's child, I'm just going to... Maybe they haven't got faith in the first place. This idea of holding on to our courage. In the original I think some of the older versions talk about holding fast. And in nautical terms, that is to do with ships, if you're in a storm and you hold fast your course, that in the middle of a storm, the winds are blowing and, you, and you're holding firm. And that's the idea that's going on here. Holding fast your confidence. It's a very important idea, the idea of confidence in Hebrews. In chapter 4, just in the bottom corner of the page, verse 16, the writer says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. All the way through this letter, towards the end, it's a very strong motif. Maybe we should just turn to chapter 10. Just go with me there. Um, so all the arguments in between which we'll go through but he gets to chapter 10 and verse 19 he says therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith This is confident talk. This is fighting talk. He's wanting God's people to be confident, not hesitant. What does he say in the same chapter, verse 35? These people are in danger of giving up. What does he say to them? So, verse 35 of chapter 10, So do not throw away your what? Confidence. Why? It will be richly rewarded. You need to do what? Persevere. So that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he's promised. Can you see how he's trying to stir their hearts? Keep going. And what about verse 39? But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are of those who believe and are saved. Confidence, confidence, confidence. So two things are being taught here. Every true child of God will make it. The believer's security is guaranteed because it rests on God. But every true child of God needs to strive to make it because the believer's continuance in faith is constantly urged. This is not easygoing Christianity. 
it's not a little bit here and a little bit there. It's determined and focused. You know the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, that famous book, John Bunyan? He said this, My aim is not to run a little now and then by fits and starts or halfway or almost thither. Old English. But to run for my life, to run through all the difficulties and to continue therein to the end of the race which must be to the end of my life. My aim is not to run a little now and then, fits and starts, halfway or almost there, but to run for my life through all the difficulties and to continue to the very end of the race, which must be to the end of my life. The question here is not one of the retention of salvation based on a persistence of faith, but the possession of salvation as evidenced by a continuing in faith. One writer says this, It is true that genuine believers have many ups and downs and that not one of them is perfect. They may even go very far away from the Lord just as Peter did when he denied him. But they cannot stay away. They've been transformed inside and their new nature constantly reveals that it's there. They return to the Lord. They grow in spiritual strength and understanding and never turn their back on Christ irretrievably. If having professed Christ, a person then leaves him forever, it will be because their profession of faith was never genuine. They were never divinely changed. Do you get the challenge of this? This is what the writer's trying to... He's trying to shock them. He's warning them. The challenge is, if you want to know assurance, the only way to know it is to live like a Christian now. That's it, isn't it? And to keep doing it by God's grace every day. If you do that, God will keep you and you will know his presence in your life. You can't say... I'm a Christian, but it's complicated. And things stop me from living like one. You either are or you aren't. There's no excuse. And if you slack off, there's a danger that you're simply pretending. There are people who think they're Christians, but they're really pretending to be Christians. They say they are, but there's no evidence in their life that they are. Their lives are no different. They're not any more like Jesus. They are Christians in name, but not in their lives. And I, 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 th- I think this is a hard challenge for us, but we go so far the other way, I think, in modern church life, let's not put pressure on one another. We don't want to be legalistic. Oh, we're going to be like Pharisees. We're not in danger of being Pharisees. We're so far the other end of the spectrum. We're, for, for us... We, we, we need to wake up sometime because we've become so anemic and lost our passion and enthusiasm for Jesus. The writer is not teaching here that true Christians can fall away. He's teaching true Christians to guard their hearts and to keep pressing on.
And he's teaching false Christians to wake up and get real before it's too late. And the righteous view, I think, is that the only way you can know you're a real Christian is to be one and live like one today, now. There is no assurance of being a Christian tomorrow. You need to get on with it now. Now, that's just verse 6, so we better rattle on, haven't we? We're okay. I think that when the writer says, we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast, I think something comes into his mind there as he writes that. And I think he thinks, I, I can think of times in history when people haven't done that. I can think of people who thought, thought they were believers and they made a right mess of things. And so he begins to quote from the Old Testament so this whole passage is a warning do not harden your hearts now this is where it gets a bit complicated because there's at least three different groups of people here so we're going to need a timeline a very simple timeline so here's my first oops it's all gone a bit flaky today. Here it comes. The first part of my timeline is from 1500 BC. And it's Exodus, the very time of Moses. And what an extraordinary time it was. Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt. The people see the amazing things that God did for them, rescuing them. And the issue was that they didn't believe God's promise. And they refused to enter the promised land. They saw what God had done for them in the past, but they were not at all confident that God would be to them all that he promised to be in the future. And this is compounded by the fact that they'd seen so much of what God had done. So the, the writer here describes it as rebellion. And, and the reason he calls it rebellion is because they had evidence, but they refused to believe. They just didn't trust God. They broke faith with God. No sooner they come into the wilderness the desert of Sinai. In Exodus chapter 16, you can read these words. They said to Moses, we should have died in Egypt. What a thing to say. God has rescued them miraculously. They come into the desert and they're grumbling to Moses and saying, we should have just died in Egypt. This is rubbish. There's better there. In Exodus chapter 17, they go to Moses and say, Is God with us? Is he among us or not? What on earth is going on? He's brought, us out of, he's brought us out of Egypt into the desert to be fried like a crisp. We should have stayed where we were, Moses. You're a lousy lead. You don't know what you're doing. In fact, God doesn't know what he's doing. God continued to feed them, protect them, lead them and guide them. He stayed with them. 
but they didn't really know him. The picture is one of unprovoked disloyalty. They are like a man who promises to fight and then runs away. Where were the people in that community who grabbed the others by the scruff of the neck and said, shut up complaining and trust God? <laughs> where, were, where were the, 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 the whinge, 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 more, 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 isn't God rubbish, we should have died in Egypt. It's, where were the people who grabbed hold of each other by the scruff of the neck and said, stop it? Can you imagine what this sounds like to God? The lesson here is that God's patience may run out. It is a wonder that he didn't squash them there and then. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. And I said... Their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. These are serious words, aren't they? Oh man, we need to be so quick here. It is very interesting that the writer talks about a, a day of testing, a time of testing, and then 40 years, you know, I've been thinking about this. The word for rebellion is related to the word for bitterness. And one of the places that they stopped, they couldn't get water and there was bitterness involved. Maybe there was one day in the desert there where it all went wrong. A time of testing. And the little thought just came into mind. I don't think God's with us, you know. One day. That's where it starts. One day. The issue for them is that they feel that God isn't able to look after them. And suddenly a coldness comes into their heart. And that one day, that feeling on one day becomes a habit and a lifestyle. And the poor thoughts they have of God on that one day develop into a way of thinking that shapes their thinking, shapes their lives. It always starts in the heart, doesn't it? In the affections, the thoughts, the inner person. The first thing that happens is that the person's inner heart becomes hard towards God's demands. God's asking too much of me. He's cruel. He's hard. He's being vindictive. And the human heart refuses to receive God's demands because, frankly, sin looks more attractive. That one day, it starts on one day with one thought and develops. I just want you to notice something else very important. Let's just, um, just grapple with this. God said in verse 10, two th he describes them in two ways. He says, their hearts are always going astray and they haven't known my ways. Two things. The first is that they're always going astray. On, on the one hand habitual poor behaviour if I give them a choice they always make the wrong one that's what God says about them what a great advert 
This is why the Bible's so brilliant, isn't it? It's honest. It doesn't gloss over, does it? Human failure. They habitually go astray. It's a habit. On the other hand, they haven't known my ways. That is ignorance. What I want us to see is that these two ideas reinforce one another. What I mean by that is, if your behavior is poor, you won't be able to see God right. Because poor behavior has a blinding effect. When you sin, it's like putting a bag over your head so you can't see properly. But on the other hand, if you don't see God properly and see him rightly, your behavior will always tend to be poor. I don't know what comes first, but those two things reinforce one another. Ignorance of God and poor behavior reinforce one another. And this is God's verdict on their lives. Habitual strength and ignorance go hand in hand. What's the antidote to that? The antidote to that is proper information about God, proper light, and cleaned up behavior. That is why faith and behavior always go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. So, for these Old Testament believers, this is a gradual hardening, like setting concrete. It started sometime with a thought, that thought becomes a habit and a lifestyle. And the more their behavior and ignorance of God interact, the further from God they drift. And in the end, God says, they'll never enter my rest. They never knew God in their hearts. So that's the first part of our timeline. The second part of our timeline then is, I'll just do this very quick, Psalm 95. So now we're up to 1000 BC. So this, what, what the writer's quoting here, is not from Exodus, it's all about Exodus, but it's really from Psalm 95. Do you know Psalm 95? Sometimes you read it in church, but we only read the first half, because the second half is really all this. <laughs> the, let's change it very quick. Psalm 95, I, I said we had a lot to get through, and we'll, we'll try and be quick. Psalm 95, what a great uh, first half of the psalm. Do you know this psalm is sung every week in the Sabbath, in, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. 1000 BC, 500 years after these things happened, the, the psalmist says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving, extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Isn't that beautiful? Worship. Do you know what goes hand in hand with worship? Loyalty faith and so the second half of the psalm today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts we love worship don't we
But do we get the second part? Psalm 95 then, 1000 BC. So God's speaking to them in 1000 BC now and saying, don't make the mistakes of the past. And then the third group, obviously, is the Hebrews. So this is the next bit. This is 63 AD now. So the Exodus stuff happens. Then the psalmist is reflecting on that 500 years later and singing that every week in the Sabbath. So they're remembering what's gone there. And then the writer to Hebrews quotes this very psalm referring to this very event in the Old Testament. And what does he say? He says, So as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, he doesn't say so as the Holy Spirit said in 1000 BC. As the Holy Spirit says, he's applying it to them in 63 AD, them. Can you see the different layers? Exodus, Psalms, Hebrews. He has a very high view of the Bible. These things have been written in the past to teach us now. And it's very significant that the whole quote starts with the word today. It's always today, not tomorrow, not yesterday. He's speaking to them now, today. The same God who was there in Exodus is the same God who reminds them in the Psalms and the same God who calls these Hebrews today not to harden their heart. This isn't just history. It is that, but it's so much more. This is God unfolding his purposes in history. History is the canvas that he is painting stories upon that will draw us to him. But it's more than that because these stories are the foundation for Jesus then coming into the story. So it's not just a story, but it's a story he's participated in. So look at what the writer says in verse 12. Here's his big application. So, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Actually, there's a fourth group, isn't there? There's a fourth group us we're here looking at this hearing these very words Exodus, Psalms, Hebrews and today 2013 today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts this is a word not just for them or for the ones before them but also for us now. All falling away begins one day. So this way to us today is live this one day well. Concentrate on being the Christian you should be now, not tomorrow, but here and today. 
And the word to us is, do not harden your heart. Very quickly, we're nearly done now. In verse 12, it is an individual responsibility. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. But it is also a mutual, corporate responsibility. Because verse 13 says, Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It is an individual responsibility for us to guard our own hearts by God's grace and with his help. But it is not enough for each individual person to care for themselves. Because our sinful hearts deceive us, we need one another. Encourage one another daily. And verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first can I say this there's four things that we need to do with God's word first of all we need to make sure we hear it privately at home and publicly together as a church family hearing it is really important secondly believing it it's not just enough to hear it we need to believe it Thirdly, obey it. Hear it, believe it, obey it. And fourthly, to share it. Mutually encouraging one another. This passage ends here with some rhetorical questions then. And what he's trying to do is drive home the seriousness. Who was it who heard and rebelled? Was it the pagans? Nope. It was those who Moses led out of Egypt. What? And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it the pagans? No. It was those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? Who was it who failed? It was those who thought they never would. A good beginning is no guarantee of a good ending. The name Christian is no guarantee of actually being one. Meeting with God's people like this is no guarantee of being in God's family. So, Moses was good. Jesus is better. Don't desert him but fix your thoughts on him. Don't let your heart be hardened, but trust him. Don't make excuses, blaming other people and blaming God. Get on with living a faithful life now, today. And keep doing it. And with God's help, you'll make it to the very end. And not end up shipwrecked somewhere with good intentions don't be deceived don't be deceived without living a holy life no one will ever make it to the end
Jesus doesn't give out like day passes to exempt you. What Jesus gives is not day passes to exempt you. What Jesus gives is power to change. And finally, don't be a lone ranger. I've never yet met a lone ranger who is a healthy Christian. Don't be a lone ranger, but be devoted to the Christian family that you're part of. Be part of God's house instead of peeking in through the window from the outside. It's a serious chapter. I hope we've done it justice. Let's, um, let's just read these words again as we close. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you, none of you, has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from a living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Amen.